All right, well, we're there in Isaiah uh, chapter number 57, and we're making our way through the book of Isaiah, and I want you to understand something before we get into Isaiah 57. Uh, keep your finger there. That's going to be the text for tonight. We're going to be in there, but, but go with me just real quickly to Isaiah chapter number 1, and don't worry, we're not starting over the series, okay, at chapter 1, but I want you to notice something from Isaiah chapter number 1. In Isaiah chapter number 1 and verse 1, we are told of the time frame which, in which the prophet Isaiah ministered. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of. So it lists the kings who reigned in Jerusalem and Judah uh, during the ministry of Isaiah. So it says Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. So I want you to understand, Isaiah had a pretty long ministry. I mean, over, the, over these, he became a prophet when Uzziah was king, and through Jotham, through Ahaz, and into Hezekiah, his ministry basically went, and, and he stopped ministering, or he more than likely passed away, um, during the reign of Hezekiah. So I want you to understand that Isaiah ministered up until the reign or the kingdom of King Hezekiah. Now go with me to the book of 2 Kings, just real quickly, and uh, go to 2 Kings chapter number 20. So if in your Old Testament, if you can find those books that are First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, find the books that have the number one or the number two in front of it, and uh, they're, they're kind of all uh, clustered together. Go to 2 Kings chapter number 20. Because I want you to understand something about Isaiah 57. I believe, and, and you know, and it's up for debate, and, and not, not anybody can be 100% sure. But I believe that Isaiah 57 is actually a prophecy of the next king who was to come after Hezekiah and after the ministry of Isaiah. Because if you remember, Isaiah was a prophet up until the kingdom or the, the reign of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, in 2 Kings chapter number 20, and, and let me go ahead and tell you this. We're going to leave 2 Kings and we're going to come back to it and we're going to leave it and come back to it. We're going to be going back and forth between Isaiah and 2 and 1 Kings a lot. So just put a bulletin there or a ribbon or a bookmark or something so you can get to it quickly. And that way we won't waste a lot of time. But if you look at 2 Kings chapter number 20, and you look at verse number 21, the Bible says this, And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, all right, I want you to remember that name, Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. I believe Isaiah 57 is a prophecy, a forewarning of the coming kingdom of this young man, Manasseh, who reigned after his father, Hezekiah. And even though Isaiah did not live during the reign of Manasseh, I think that God used him to kind of warn about the events of Manasseh. Now, let's just read a little bit about the kingdom of Manasseh. We saw there in verse 21 of chapter 20 that Manasseh basically reigned after his uh, father, Hezekiah. If you flip over to the next chapter, chapter 21 we can learn about a little bit about the reign of Manasseh. Now, let me just give you, because if you remember when we were in the middle of the book of Isaiah, there's three chapters just right in the center of the book that are a narrative. The entire book of Isaiah is basically Isaiah's preaching, but there's a section in the middle that is kind of telling us a story, and it tells us about Hezekiah, how he dealt with the Assyrian threat, and then how he basically allowed pride to come into his heart when the Babylonians came, and he kind of showed off about all the different treasures that he had, and because of that, God basically, 
basically said, you know, the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to destroy this land, they're going to take it away. Now, if you remember, God performed a miracle for Hezekiah in the fact that he allowed him to live 15 years longer. Up to that point, Hezekiah had had no children. But within those 15 years that God had given Hezekiah, he gave birth or he, he conceived a son by the name of Manasseh. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 21, I want you to look at verse number 1, and we'll learn a little bit about Manasseh. Uh, verse 1 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hez, uh, Hephzibah. Look at verse 2. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you remember from our study in Hezekiah, Hezekiah had led one of the greatest revivals that the children of Israel had seen. I mean, he was a godly man. He had some mistakes and he made some, he had some pride issues later on in life. But when he was on fire and when he was right with God, he was doing all sorts of great things, drawing the people closer to God. But he had this son named Manasseh. And the Bible says that, uh, verse 2 again, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after, notice what it says, after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Look at verse 3. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. So Hezekiah earlier through a revival had taken all the false idols and the altars to false gods and he had destroyed them. And then Hezekiah came up behind him and basically rebuilt those places. Look at verse 3. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed and he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and serve them. So he's worshiping false idols. Verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he basically turned the temple, the house of God, into a place where they worship false gods. Verse 6, and he made his son. Now, I want you to make note of this, okay? He made his sons a pass through the fire. Manasseh went so far into false religion that he actually began to institute human sacrifice. And they were actually, look at verse 6, he made his sons pass through the fire. They would take their children, they would take their babies, and they would throw them into a fire and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to their false gods. Notice what it says, verse 6, he made his sons pass through the fire and observed times. That's your, you know, horoscope that you like to read in your newspaper. And used enchantments, that's your, uh, witchcraft, and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Manasseh was the worst king that the nation of Judah had ever had. Look, go, go down to verse number 9. Let me just, we'll skip some of the verses just for sake of time. You can read it on your own if you'd like. But look at verse 9. The Bible says, but they hearkened not, talking about the children of Israel, they didn't hearken to God's word. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil. Then did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Manasseh led these people to be even worse heathen than the heathens that were in the land that God had commanded the children of Israel earlier in the book of Joshua to go in and to remove them because of their wickedness. Here he's saying Manasseh did worse than those people. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spake by his, serpent, by his servants the prophets saying, Because Manasseh king of Judah hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above 
all that the Amorites did. He said, he is worse than the heathen which were before him and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. Look at verse number uh, 16. Skip down to verse number 16, same chapter. Notice what the Bible says. Moreover, Manasseh uh, shed. Now, don't miss this. Manasseh shed. Innocent blood, very much. A reference to the, child, you know, to, the, to the human sacrifice. A reference to the fact that while he was king, people would take their children and throw them into fire and burn them alive to sacrifice to these kings. The Bible says, moreover, Manasseh shed uh, innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So I want you to understand. Go back to Isaiah 57. But I want you to understand the context, because Isaiah did not live during the time of Manasseh. In fact, the prominent uh, prophet during the time of Manasseh was uh, probably uh, Jeremiah. And, and, but here we have Isaiah kind of prophesying about this future wicked king. And he begins in Isaiah 57 talking about a persecution of believers. Notice what the Bible says. Isaiah 57, verse number 1. The righteous perisheth. He says, the righteous are dying. And no man layeth it to heart. He says, the righteous are dying and nobody cares. The righteous are being persecuted and nobody gives it a second thought. And merciful men are taken away, none considering. He said, no one's even thinking about it. Nobody even cares that the righteous are perishing. The merciful men are taken away. None considereth that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Now, I want you to understand, he's talking about persecution. And he's talking about the fact that righteous people are dying, merciful people are dying. But keep in mind that not only were righteous, godly people, because remember, Hezekiah led a great revival. Hezekiah brought people to God. So I'm sure there was many people alive that were alive during the reign of Manasseh's father who stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, we don't want to worship Baal. And we don't want to sacrifice our children to idols. And this is wrong. And we ought to worship the God of the Bible. And and, and here we are told that those righteous people, those merciful people, were being put to death, were being persecuted. No one cared. No one laid it to heart. But you got to understand this. It probably is also a reference to all of those children that were being killed during the reign of Manasseh. Because skip down to verse number 3. Notice what the Bible says. I'm sorry, verse number 5. Isaiah 57, verse 5. Notice what the Bible says. Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree. Notice, this is why it's interesting that it's probably talking about Manasseh. Because we read about Manasseh in 2 Kings that he shed much innocent blood, that he sacrificed his children to the fire. And Isaiah 57, 5 says, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying, notice, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. So, so it's talking about righteous, merciful people. But it's probably also talking about the fact that these children died. Now, there's, there's, it, it, it's, it's kind of a bad context. It's, it, it's terrible to think that there was godly people 
you know, believers in God that were dying and even children that were being put to death because of the reign of this man. But there is one truth in this verse that I want you to notice and I don't want you to skip it. Look at verse 1. The righteous perisheth and no man layeth it to heart. The merciful men are taken away, none considering, and I want you to make note of this phrase, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. See, the Bible teaches, sometimes as a pastor I have to talk to people and deal with people while they're going through hard times and terrible times. I, you know, I've had to go to, to, to the hospital and, and, and minister to a, a mother who just lost a child. Minister to, 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 you know, it's a terrible thing when, when a woman gives birth to a child and the child only survives a few days. Sometimes a son dies before their parents do, and, and, and you've got to think about you know, how that individual is feeling, and, and the words the same. But here the Bible tells us that sometimes, sometimes God will allow a, a person to die, a righteous person, a merciful person, maybe even a child. And we would think, you know, why would God do this? And why would God allow this? And why would God not stop it? But here we are told that none considereth that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. And sometimes God will take a child. And really all he's doing is sparing them from maybe a worse evil that would have happened to them. And in God's mercy, death is protection. Because to us, death is a terrible thing. To us, death, we think, you know, we don't want to die. But to God, when a child dies or when a righteous person dies, the Bible says they go to heaven. I mean, the Bible says that in the eyes of God, the death of his saints, it's a good thing because they get to be uh, united with their God. And here we're told that, yes, sometimes people are persecuted, but in some ways they are taken away from the evil to come. Let me give you, another, let me give you an example of this. Go, to, go back. Remember I told you to keep your place in uh, 2 Kings? Go to 1 Kings chapter number 14. 1 Kings chapter number 14. 1 Kings 14. And we're going to read a few verses just so you get the context of the story. But I want you to notice what the Bible says. 1 Kings chapter number 14 and verse number 1. The Bible says, At that time Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell safe. Now, if you remember your Bible, if you've been reading your Old Testament, you remember that after the death of Solomon the kingdom was divided between Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and Jeroboam, who was a man that God used to divide the kingdom as a punishment for Solomon's, you know, just living uh, wickedly at the end of his life. Look, so that Jeroboam is the man whom we're talking about in this story. Notice what it said. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself that thou... Be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam, and get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is Ahijah the prophet, which told me that I should be king over this people. So, if you remember, Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom. And when his son gets sick, he basically tells his wife to dress herself up in a way that no one would recognize that she is 
the, the, the wife of the king of the northern kingdom, and he tells her to go down to Shiloh, which is a city in the southern kingdom, and to find the prophet, the man of God, who had told him originally that he was going to be the king that God would use to judge the house of David. And he says, go find that prophet, look at verse 3, and take with thee ten loaves and uh, cracknels and uh, a curse of honey and go to him and he shall tell thee what shall become of the child. So he's got this child. He is sick. He sends his wife disguised down to the southern kingdom to go ask the prophet what is going to happen to their child. Look at verse 4. And Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see. The prophet, the man of God, could not physically see. He's an old man uh, and he lost his sight. But Ahijah could not see for his eyes were set by reason of his age. Verse 5. And the Lord said unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee uh, for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be when she cometh in that she shall feign herself to be another woman. So basically, you've got the prophet there. God says to him before Jeroboam's wife shows up, he says, hey, Jeroboam's wife's coming. She's going to act like she's some other woman. She's asking about her son. Here's what I want you to say to her. So he basically has the heads up that this woman is coming. Look at verse 6. And it was so when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet that she came in at the door that he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy, heady, uh, heavy tidings. So he basically says, Come on in. I've been expecting you. I've got some bad news for you. Look at verse 7. Go. Tell Jeroboam. So the prophet says to the wife, he says, Go tell your husband. Go tell Jeroboam. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. For as much as I exalted thee from among the people and made thee prince over my people Israel and rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it thee, and yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in mine eyes. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I promoted you, Jeroboam. I lifted you up. I gave you the kingdom. And you have not been like David, who followed me with all his heart. You've sinned and you've gone away from God. Look at verse 9. But has done evil above all that were before. For thee, for thou hast gone and made thee other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger, and has cast me behind thy back. Therefore, behold. So he says, Because Jeroboam, when I promoted you, because Jeroboam, when I lifted you, because Jeroboam, when I gave you success, your heart got lifted up, and you went after other gods. The Bible says, Look at verse 10. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to kill every male in your family. That phrase, pisseth against the wall, is basically referring to a male. It's the Old Testament way of saying male. He says, I'm going to cut off every male from your house. And him that is shut up and left in Israel, I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it be all gone. He's saying, I'm going to get rid of your family. I'm going to destroy your family. I'm going to kill every man. He said, I'm going to throw you out like dung. Look at verse 11. Him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. For the Lord hath spoken it. He says, Jeroboam, you're done. I'm going to, I'm going to destroy your family. But notice what the Bible says. Verse 12. And this is the prophet speaking to the wife of Jeroboam who has a baby that is sick. And he says, Arise thou therefore, get thee to thine own house. And when thy feet enter into the city, the child shall die. He says, your, your child's going to die. As soon as you get back home, your child will be dead. And you say, well, why would God do that? Why would God take 
the life of a child. But notice what the Bible says. Because think about it. Jeroboam's family is in for doom. I mean, the men are going to die painful and, 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 and humiliating deaths. But the Bible says that this child is going to die. Verse 13. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only, notice, for he only, talking about this child that's going to die, of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. He's the only one that will die with dignity. He's the only one that will even be buried. Because remember he said, he said the other, the other people in Jeroboam's family, if they die in the city, they're not going to get buried. The dogs are going to eat them. If they die in the field, they're not going to get buried. The birds will eat them. But he said this child will come to the grave. Notice what it says, verse 13. Because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. And here's what the Bible is saying. God found something in this baby that he liked. Something good was in this child. And God said, I'm going to do this child a favor instead of allowing him to grow up in the home of Jeroboam. And instead of allowing him to grow up to know false idols and false doctrine and to maybe grow up to be a, a terrible person, God says, I'm going to Go ahead and take the life of this child. And he said, what I'm doing is I'm doing a favor to this child. Go back to Isaiah 57. It's a hard saying, but you've got to understand, sometimes, sometimes people have their lives taken away. And it's not a terrible thing. It's God doing them a favor. Is God keeping them from some worse evil? Is God keeping them from maybe um, going down a path that they will regret? Isaiah 57 verse 1, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. The merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. So the first thing we see in this passage here is that sometimes God takes the life of a child and He's protecting them from the evil to come. And it's not our place to question God. It's not our place to, to, to demand an answer from God. God knows what He's doing. God knows why He's doing it. And our place is just to believe that God has our best interests at heart. Look at verse number uh, 17 again. I'm, so, I'm sorry, verse number 5. I just want, you, I want to bring your attention back to this. Verse 5, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliff of the rocks. Here you have Manasseh killing children, sacrificing children. If you can get back to 2 Kings, did, I, did you keep your place there in first and second? Remember I told you we we're going to be going back and forth. I just want you to see these verses again. 2 Kings 21, look at verse number 6. 2 Kings 21, verse 6. We already read it, but I want you to see it again. 2 Kings 21, 6. The Bible says, and he made his sons pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. The Bible says, he made his sons to pass through the fire. Go down to verse number 16, same chapter. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much. Go with me to the book of Psalms. You're there in, uh, in 2 Kings. Go, go past First and Second Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Psalm 139. I, I, you know, let me just take a moment to say this. There is nothing new under the sun. And back in the times of the Bible, there was people who were sacrificing their children and killing 
children, and, and, and it's the same thing today. And, and, and today people say, well, we don't live in those type of times where a mother would injure her own child or a father would consent to the death of their own child. But listen to me. God said that Manasseh shed innocent blood. And later on in different passages, God says that he will not forgive the shedding of innocent blood. And he said the Babylonians will come. The Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem. The Babylonians will take the children of Israel uh, uh, captive. And he says he will not forgive the fact that Manasseh allowed people to die. But guess what? In the United States of America, we're killing children just as much, if not more, than Manasseh. 3,000 children a day, we're told, are aborted by their mother, aborted with consent from their father. And you've got to understand this. It's the same thing as back then. Innocent blood is being shed. You're there in, uh, are you there in Psalm 139? Look at verse number 14. Psalm 139 and verse 14. I want you to keep your finger there because we're going to leave it. We're going to come back right to it. But Psalm 139, 14 says this, I will praise thee. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen, the Bible says that you were created. The Bible says that God took the time to every individual, every single person. He took the time to create and to make them. You didn't evolve. You didn't come from a monkey. You didn't come from whatever they're telling you you came from. You came from... From God. God is your creator. It says, I will praise thee. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right. Notice verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect in thy book. All my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. The Bible says that you, God created you. God formed you. God uh, curiously wrought you. He fashioned you in the womb. Now keep your finger there in Psalm 139. Go back to Isaiah, but go to Isaiah chapter 7. Let me just give you a few things and then we'll, we'll make a few points. Isaiah Go to Isaiah chapter number 7, okay? Because sometimes people ask, well, you know, what is the basis? Why is it that Christians believe abortion is murder? You know, why is it you believe that taking the life of a child in the womb is wrong? You know, and, and we get it from the Word of God. But let me just give you one example. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, we have a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Isaiah prophesies the fact that Jesus would be born. Notice what he says. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin. And I want you to make note of these two words. A virgin shall conceive. Do you see those words? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Bible tells us that Mary was a virgin. She had never been with a man, but she conceived and she bare a son and she called his name Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah chapter 7, keep your finger there. I know you got your finger in Psalms also. But go to Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter number 1 and verse number 23. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 is actually quoted by Matthew in the book of Matthew. And I want you to notice how he quotes it. Because Isaiah was actually was obviously written in Hebrew, and Matthew was written in Greek. We understand that. But when the Holy Spirit translated the verse into Greek for Matthew, he changed the words a little bit, but here's what you got to understand. Whenever a quote is quoted differently from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's not a contradiction. It's God defining the word for us. It's God allowing us to understand what the word means. In Matthew 1.23, the Bible says this, Behold, now in Isaiah 7.14 it said, Behold, a virgin shall 
conceive. But notice how it's quoted in the book of Matthew. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Do you see that? See, the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. Because when Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive, Matthew said, a virgin shall be with child. Why? Because when conception is fulfilled, that is not, it's not an embryo. It's not a blob of tissue. It is, according to the Bible, a child. It is, according to the Bible, a life. So to end a life after conception is murder. It's wrong. It's wicked. Go, go back to Psalm 139. People today like to say, oh, no, no, no. See, when, when you have conception, it doesn't actually become a child till later on. Once it plants on the uterus wall, one, you know, after it's it, it, it begun to develop, then it's when it becomes a child. But when does the Bible call it a child? The Bible calls it a child at conception. A virgin shall conceive, a virgin shall be with child. But go back to Psalm 139. Look at verse 16 again. Notice what he says. Thine eyes did see my substance. He's talking about God. He says, God saw my substance. God saw what I was made of, yet being unperfect. He says, before I was, because the word perfect in the Bible means complete. It's not talking about perfect like without a blemish. It just means whole. He says, before I was complete. He says, before I was done. Before I came out. Before I was ready for, 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 uh, uh, to, for birth. He says, you saw my substance yet being complete. In thy book, all my members were written. The word members means body parts. He says, in your book, God, you know, and I'm not really sure what he's talking about. I don't know if God has a book in heaven that he kind of sketches people, you know. And he decides, I'm going to create Joshua Jimenez. And he kind of sketches him out and says, here's what he's going to look like. I'm going to create Joel Jimenez. And he kind of sketches him out and says, here's what he's going to look like. I'm going to create Elizabeth Jimenez. I'm going to create Lydia Jimenez. I don't know if that's what he's talking about. But here's what he says. He says, thine eyes did see my substance. Be, yet being unperfect. He said, before I was complete, you saw what I would look like. And in thy book, all my members were written. He said, all my body part, everything that I was going to be was already in your book, which is in continuance, were fashioned. He said, they were fashioned. He said, they were complete. He said, you saw them when as yet there was none of them. He says, before I had a hand, you knew what my hand would look like. Before I had a leg, you knew what my leg would look like. Before I had a body, you knew what I would look like. Because life begins at conception. Before you even look like what God's going to create you to look like. He says, you're a child when you conceive. And see, it's wrong. It's wicked. It's a terrible sin. To allow people and to encourage people to take the life of a child in the womb, which should be the most safe place for a child. But let me take it a step further. Because today we're having an abortion holocaust in the United States of America. 3,000 children dying every day at the hands of so-called doctors. But here's what you're going to understand. If life begins at conception... We've got a problem in Christianity because here's what happens with Christians. We get all wound up and we get all upset and we want to go, we want to go down to Planned Parenthood and, and hold that sign and get all mad and, and, and that's fine. If you want to do that, I don't have an issue with that. And we get mad at abortion and we should get mad at abortion. And I think abortion is murder. I think all the abortion doctors should be put to death because they are murderers. They are killers. All the nurses that are helping them, they are murderers. They, it, they, they are taking the life. But let me tell you something. If life begins at conception which the Bible says it does, 
There's a problem among Christian people. You know why? Because there are actual birth control pills that do the exact same thing and life after conception. See, a lot of people don't understand this, and let me just take a moment to explain it to you. Because today we have this society that says, you know, children are a headache. Children are, you know, a burden. You don't want to have children. You want to be able to, you know, have a relationship with someone and not have to worry about having a child. So they've created these birth control pills and these different types of, you know, uh, things that you can put into your body to keep you from giving birth. But a lot of people don't understand how these birth control pills Work And I'm going to read for you a little bit from an, uh, a pro-life article here. But before I even read it, just so you kind of understand, the way that the average birth control pill works is there's three mechanisms to it. The first mechanism is that it uh, tries to stop a woman from, uh, you know, releasing an egg. So obviously, you, you know, a woman has a cycle that she goes through. And when the egg is released, uh, if that egg, you know, meets with the blood of a man, you have conception and you have a child. So these birth control pills, what they try to do is they try to mess with the cycle of a woman so that the egg will not release. Now, that's only mechanism number one. If, you, if that fails, which it often does, the second mechanism for a birth control pill is it actually puts a coating on the egg of a woman, which is supposed to try to prevent uh, conception. Because obviously when the seed of a man meets the egg of a woman, you have conception. But if you have a coating around that egg, which does not allow the seed to penetrate, then you don't have conception and you will not get pregnant. That's mechanism number two. But guess what? Mechanism number one fails sometimes. Mechanism number two fails sometimes. And then there's mechanism number three. Mechanism number three is this. A birth control pill will stop a conceived egg from implanting in the uterine or wall of a woman. Let me read for you out of an article here from a pro-life website. It says, It is a medical fact that the morning after pill, a high dosage of the birth control pill, and that's all the morning after pill is. It's a high dosage of the birth control pill. And most, if not all, birth control drugs and devices, including the IUD, the Depo-Provera, the patch, and the pill can act to terminate a pregnancy by chemically altering the lining of the uterus so that a newly conceived child is unable to implant in the womb, thus starving and dying. This mechanism of action is termed a pre-implantation chemical abortion or sometimes referred to as a silent abortion. you got to understand this. If you are on a birth control pill, ladies, and I'm not against you if you are. Maybe you've never even heard this before. But if you are in a birth control pill and you are actively, you know, having relationship with your husband, hopefully it's your husband, you know. Um, you know, if you're not married, you ought not be fornicating. We, the Bible teaches all those things. But here's the thing. There's a chance. There is a chance that you have an egg that is conceived and when it goes to implant on that uterine wall, it's not allowed to because what it does, it, it creates chemicals around the uterine wall that does not allow the egg to implant. And that egg, when it implants, it gets the umbilical cord. That's where it gets its nutrients from. That's how it gets fed. And basically, you have a child that is alive that is starving to death in your womb because you can't be bothered with a baby because children are a burden. Because kids are, you know, annoying. You got to understand. And here's the funny thing. 
fundamental Baptists and Christians all over the country, we want to get all upset and all riled up and abortion is wrong. And abortion is wrong while we've got Christian women popping birth control pills and probably killing Christian children by the millions. I mean, if you think about just the years that birth control has been uh, prevalent in our society. And we've got to get to this place. You say, well, I've never heard of this. Well, why don't you study it out before you put something in your body, ladies? Why don't you do some research and figure out, what exactly am I doing to my body when I take a birth control pill? Because, listen, we get so upset at the liberals, and we get so bad at the Democrats, and Obama is so bad because he voted this and he voted that, and they want to kill the babies. And, and probably Christians are killing just as many with these birth control pills. Because of conception... If life begins at conception and you stop a conceived child from being able to implant on a uterine wall and get fed, you have committed murder. You have taken a life. And you say, well, it's not, it's not a baby till it looks like a baby. I mean, it looks like, you know, something different. So the, the Bible says that before it was perfect, when no one had seen it, God already knew. God had already seen them. God had already uh, done it. Go back to Isaiah 57. See, God hates innocent shed be, uh, blood being shed. God hates when. And, and, and here's the thing. Back then, they were uh, sacrificing their children on the altar of idols. Today, there's, you know, women want to sacrifice their children, and men want to sacrifice their children on the altar of convenience, on the altar of, I, I, I can't afford to have a child because I need to go on three vacations every year because I need to go on a cruise. I can't afford to have a child. On the altar of, I just want to, you know, be a harlot and be a whore and sleep around and not have to worry about having a child and not have to worry about the responsibility. Listen to me. It is murder. It is wrong. And as Christians, we need to wake up and, and, and figure out, what does the Bible say about these things? And live right and do right and follow it. Go back to Isaiah 57. Look at verse number 6. I'm just giving you the highlights of the chapter because we can't cover everything. Look at verse 6. Among the smooth stones of the streams is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon the lofty and high mountains. Now I want you to notice because Isaiah kind of transitions. He's talking about Manasseh. And the fact, and we saw there in, in, in uh, 2 Kings that Manasseh, one of the big things he did was he caused people to worship idols. His two biggest sins were the fact that he allowed children to be put to death and he uh, sacrificed, you know, children to these idols and they basically were worshiping idols. But notice what he says in verse 7. Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Okay, now I want you to notice that phrase, has thou set thy bed, even hither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Look at verse 8. Behind the doors, okay? You see that phrase? Behind the door also and the post has thou set up thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another than me. Now here's what he's starting to do. He's starting to say and to use this idea of the idols as the fact that the children of Israel are committing adultery on God. Because notice what he says. Verse 7, he says, Upon a lofty and high mountain has thy set thy bed. He said, When you go to worship these idols on these high mountains, he said, You might as well just set a bed there because you're committing adultery. Look at what he says, verse 8. Behind the doors, he said, You got, you got with these idols behind closed doors. 
Also, and the post, as thou set up thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another than me. He's saying you've undressed yourself in front of someone else other than me, God, you know, saying as, as your husband, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed, again, a reference to the bed, and made thee a covenant with them that lovest their bed, whether thou sawest. And this is a common theme that God gives throughout the Bible. Go real quickly to the book of James. Keep your finger there, Isaiah 57. But go to James chapter number 4. James chapter number 4, and look at verse number 4. Now, if you start at the end of the, of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you go backwards, you go past Jude, past 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, past 1st, 2nd Peter, into the book of James. James chapter number 4, and look at verse number 4. James chapter number 4, and verse 4. The Bible says this, James chapter 4, and verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. See, throughout the Bible, God makes this equation. He says, when you worship the world, or when you worship the things of this world, when you worship the idols of this world, when you get infatuated with the world, he said, you are committing adultery against God. Because the Bible kind of uses this illustration that we are the bride of Christ, or we are, you know, engaged to God, that he is, you know, uh, the Bible says there in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, that the church should be subject unto Christ in the same way that a wife is subject to her husband, and that the husband should be the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. But he says this, when Christians who make up the church go and give their attention to, go and give their priority to the things of the world, it is like a wife that is committing adultery, or a husband that is committing adultery, because it's like a wife who gives more attention to another man than the man that she's married to. And you got to understand, uh, go to, well, keep your finger there, James. Go back to Isaiah 57. Let me show you something real quickly, and then we're going to come back to the New Testament. Isaiah 57, look at verse 17. You say, well, what does it mean? Because what is it that God is talking about when he talks about adultery? He's talking about idolatry, and he's equating it to adultery. Isaiah 57, look at verse 17. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wrong. So now he says, yes, I'm talking about idolatry, but now he gives it another word. He calls it covetousness. Now you say, well, what is the connection between covetousness and idolatry and adultery, okay? Go to Colossians chapter number 3. Now if you have your finger in the book of James in the New Testament, if you keep going backwards past James, past Hebrews, past Philemon, Titus, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, uh, if you get right, right before all those T-books, you got the book of Colossians. So if you find 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, right before that, you got Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Notice, notice what the Bible says. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, Now notice, all of those have to do with lust. And then he says, and covetousness, now notice what he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. See, whenever you covet in your, and we've been talking a lot about covetousness because we've been doing that financial series on Sunday mornings, but whenever you covet after something, whenever you lust after something, whenever you say, I just really want this, I just really want that, the Bible says you've actually, because today we like to say, oh, well, those heathens, they're the ones that worship the idols, and they get down in front of a statue, and they worship it. But guess what? Americans are probably the worst idolaters in the world, because you will not find more covetous people than you will find in the United States of America. 
Because we look at things, and here's what you can understand. Whenever anything takes the place of God, you are committing idolatry and you are committing adultery on God. Because the Bible says that in all things he should have the preeminence. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And when I allow anything, whether it's my job or whether it's my hobby, whether it's, you know, watching sports, whether it's my children or my wife, whenever I allow anything to come before me and God, I am not being faithful to my God. And I am committing adultery and committing idolatry through covetousness. Go back to Isaiah 57. Uh, Look at verse number 11. Let me give you a couple more things and we'll finish up. Isaiah 57, verse number 11. In Isaiah 57, 11, you find a good verse about uh, lying. Notice what it says, Isaiah 57, verse 11. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared that thou hast lied? Every time you lie, it's because you're afraid or in fear of something. There's no reason to lie if you're not afraid of getting caught or getting punished. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me nor laid it to... Thy heart have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not. See, he says, you're afraid of something, which is why you're lying, but your problem is you're not afraid of me. Look at verse 12. He says, I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. Now, it's interesting that all throughout the Bible you find this concept, and I want you to see it, okay? He says, I'm going to look at your righteousness. Now, what's your righteousness? Thy righteousness, talking about all the right things you do, all the good things you've done. Notice what he says, I will declare thy righteousness And thy works, all the things you do, all your labors, and notice what he says, for they shall not profit thee. Okay, so is your righteousness or your works going to help you? Are they going to profit you? I mean, it's the same in the time of Isaiah as it is in the time of Paul when Paul said, not of works lest any man should boast, when the Bible says, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, he says, your righteousness, your works cannot help you. Now, you're there in Isaiah 57. Skip over to Isaiah 64, just real quickly. Look at verse 6. Notice what he says about righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6. We'll deal with it when we get there, but I just want you to see it real quickly. It's a famous verse in the Bible. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away the bible says your righteousnesses are as filthy rags and isaiah 57 12 if you get back there says that your righteousness and your works shall not profit thee they won't help you they're not going to save you now notice notice the consistency of scripture because in verse 12 he says your good things your good works won't help you verse 13 when thou criest let thy companies deliver thee. Now, the word criest isn't meaning like, like I'm crying because I got hurt, right? Because in the Bible, the word for cry that we use today is weep. The word criest means to shout out, to yell. Here's what he's saying. When you open your mouth and you criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land. Now, now, what's the word trust mean? It means, I mean, faith is trust. When I place my faith in Jesus Christ, what am I doing? I'm putting my trust in him that he will save me. So here's what's interesting. Even all the way back in Isaiah, you've got in verse 12, he says, your righteousnesses, your works, they won't profit you. He said, the only thing that will help you is when you cry out, when you confess out to God and you place your trust or your faith in him. 
Now, he's not talking about salvation, spiritual salvation, but the illustration is there that it's always been about your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. It's not about works. It's not about the righteousnesses that you have. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Look at verse number uh, 15. In verse 15, you find a really great phrase. Just give you a couple of cross-references for you to have. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. So that's a really beautiful uh, way to describe God. The high and lofty one. And I want you to notice how great our God is. It says that inhabiteth eternity. Our God is so big. Our God is so great that he needs all of eternity to inhabit. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, you find a, a similar phrase. Remember I told you to keep your place in 1 Kings or 2 Kings? Can you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8 just real quickly and look at verse number 27? Now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, you've got Solomon who has just built the temple, and he's basically dedicating the temple to God. Okay, that's what he's doing in 1 Kings chapter 8. And he's praying and praising the name of God. And notice what he says in 1 Kings 8, 27. But God will indeed, uh, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, we built this great, beautiful temple for God. But then he says, but can God even dwell on the earth? Behold, now notice what he says. Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built it. He said, he, said, he, said, he said, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Isaiah said that you inhabit eternity. He said, God, you are so big. God, you are so great. You are, and you just got some wonderful verses here about the goodness and the greatness of God and the praising of God. And that's how we ought to praise the Lord. Now, let me show you one more thing in verse 15 there. Uh, he says, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a... Now, I want you to notice this. This has literally come up like every chapter in Isaiah, and it comes up again. He says, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. See, if you want God to revive you, if you want God to enable you, if you want to draw close to God, here is the key to be contrite and humble. Now, what does it mean to be contrite? Well, the Bible actually defines it for us in the book of Psalms. So go to Psalms 34, and we're going to look at two verses in Psalms. We're going to come back to Isaiah, and we'll be done, all right? Uh, Psalm 34, look at verse number 18. Whenever the Bible can be our dictionary, we should always allow the Bible to define itself, uh, comparing spiritual things with spiritual uh, so that we can get God, what God means of it. Notice what the Bible says in Psalm 34. Because we want to know, what does it mean to be contrite? Because he says, a contrite and a humble spirit. He says, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Okay? And there's, it's interesting how God does this. Okay? Psalm 34, 18. Notice what he says. The Lord is nigh. The Lord is near. That's what it's saying. Unto them that are of a broken heart. Now, I want you to notice... I'm trying to show you the word broken, but there's, there's a lot in here that I want you to see, okay? He says, God is near those who are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Do you see that? So in Psalm 34, 18, we are given two phrases, broken heart, contrite 
spirit, okay? Go to Psalm 51. Look at verse 17. Just flip a few psalms over. Psalm 51, verse 17. Notice what the Bible says. Psalm 51 and verse 17. The sacrifices of God... See, I want to give God a sacrifice. Okay, here's, God's, here's what God wants. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So what does it mean to be contrite? Here's what God defines it. It means to be broken. See, our problem is often that we are not broken. We, or at least we don't see ourselves as being broken. And what God wants from you is to just have this attitude, not of beating yourself up or, you know, being down on yourself, but just realizing, God, I am broken. I am in need. I need help. I need you to complete me. I need you to heal me. I need you to make me whole. And God says, when an individual comes to me in need, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, he would say, of a poor spirit, you know, or, or lowly... Oh, good night. Now I'm going to misquote it. Let's go there. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. I, I lied to you because I told you we were going to go back, but I don't want to misquote it. Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes where he says... Uh, well, let's see. Chapter, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here's what he's saying. When you see yourself as needy, when you're not full of yourself, when you're not just, I am so great, and I am so good, and look at me, and I am so this, and I am so that. But when you say, you know what, I, I'm just, I'm broke, again. I am poor. I need God. He says, when you come to God with that attitude, that, look, God, I'm just, I, I just want to offer myself to you. I just want to offer myself a sacrifice. I, I, I know that I'm broken, and I know that I need your help, but if, if you will have me, I'd like to be used. God says, I will draw near to that person. He says, I will come to that person, and I will revive that spirit. Now, let me just show you something real quickly in Psalm 51, because here it's interesting. Psalm 51, verse 17, he says, broken spirit, contrite heart. In Psalm 34, he says, broken heart, contrite spirit. In Psalm 57, he says, uh, he, that he will revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite one. So you notice how he keeps interchanging these words, heart and spirit, when it comes to a broken... Because it's about your heart. It's about inside. Because here's the bottom line. We all act humble. Because we have to. Because then people will say, oh, you're arrogant. But here's the thing. Are you actually humble in your heart? I mean, do you honestly look at yourself as I'm just in need? I'm just broken. I'm, I'm just a... I, it's, it's not that I don't... Uh, that I think bad of myself because here, here's, the, here's the bad part of that. You know, we've all met and we've even got them running around here. <laughs> you know, the person who's always down on themselves. You know, oh, my life is so terrible and I'm always this and I'm always that and everything goes bad for me and woe is me. We've all met that person. That's always, but here's the problem. See, that person's just as proud. Because we think arrogant is like the person that walks around and says, look at me. Look at how great looking I am. You know, look at how talented I am. That's what we think pride is. But guess what? The person who is just constantly just like, my life's a mess. My life is horrible. Nothing's going good. That person's just as proud as the other person. You know why? Because the focus is all on them. Because they're just focused on themselves. 
See, being humble is not, is not, you know, just dwelling on yourself. Being humble is just having an accurate view of yourself, realizing I am broken, I am poor, I am in need of God, but if God will use me, if, I, if God will take me, I will sacrifice myself to God and I will allow him to use me. And he says, that person, he says, that person, I'll revive that person. He says, I'll use that person because God is looking for a broken and contrite spirit or heart. Uh, go back to Isaiah 57. Let's just look at two verses. We'll be done uh, at the end. I'm not even going to comment on them. I just want to show them to you because they're, they're famous verses. Isaiah 57, verse 20. The Bible says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. That's a famous verse in Isaiah. But keep in mind that he's talking to Manasseh, who is the most wicked king that lived. And God says, he's saying, you know what, have your fun and do whatever you think you've got to do. But at the end of the day, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, is what the Bible says. And you know what, you can go ahead and live in sin, and you can live in the world, and you can try to sow, you know, your wild oats. But at the end of the day, there is peace in trusting in God and following God and being a broken vessel sacrifice unto God. Let's bow